Good morning. It's great to see all of you this morning. As Mark said, my name is Brian. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, if we've not met. And uh, I ask you to turn this morning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Uh, as I've gotten to know this congregation the last few months, I've noticed that the morning after a night game, there's a few more yawns as we get together, a little less energy in the room. So this morning as we read God's Word, let's stand. Get the blood flowing a little bit before we sit for another uh, chunk of time. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is God's Word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed to be influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much as we come to your word this morning that you are not silent. We thank you so much that you speak and you speak to us. You spoke these words thousands of years back, and yet they are here for us this morning. So please, we pray, by the power of your Spirit, open up our hearts and minds to hear your truth, to receive it, to trust it, to be changed by it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This is our third sermon so far in this series on the New Testament letter of Galatians, and it's a book largely, we'll see as we go, about spiritual slavery and spiritual freedom. What is spiritual slavery? How can we be rescued from it? What is spiritual freedom? And finally, here in chapter 2, our third sermon, we're getting finally a look into what it is that has the author of this book, Paul, so worked up. We saw in the first chapter, he comes out of the gate charging. He's fired up because of what's happening in these churches that he had planted and then left to go start more churches. He's so fired up, he doesn't even say what it is that has him fired up. The original uh, recipients of the book knew what it was, but Readers today have to wait until chapters 2 and 3. Now, I've had to backfill so we could understand just what's going on, but he didn't even say until this chapter. The direct issue that these 
that this book really is about is about the issue of circumcision and the Old Testament law. But it's, of course, we'll see as we go, about so much more than that. It's about being free, about being free from the insecurity, from the pride, from the exhausting treadmill of trying to earn your standing before God and your credibility before others. In other words, this book is about the preservation of the gospel. That's what Paul says, not even for a moment did I yield so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In our first sermon two weeks back, we talked a little bit about freedom from performance. Now this week, as Paul dives into it, I want to flesh that out a little bit more. I want us to see it even more, to understand it, to appreciate it, to live out of it, to praise God for that freedom that can come. So our first and our main point this morning is simply this, we are free. And then we'll have three smaller points that come from that. Second, so we fight. Third, so we partner. And fourth, so we remember the poor. First, we are free. If you look back with me at chapter 2, verse 1, the first verse there that we read, we see Paul picks up right where he left off last week in the section that we, that we read. He's defending himself from false attacks. Like I said, he had planted these churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. He had started them on a firm foundation, the foundation of the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected, that it is faith in that action plus absolutely nothing else that leads to salvation. But as we've said, people snuck in and they said, yes, faith in Jesus' work is great, now just add to it. Just add to it, keeping in their case, they said, the Old Testament law. That's why they were called Judaizers. They wanted to insist the Old Testament law must be kept in addition to faith in Jesus. They were saying, actually, Paul was kind of right, but listen, Paul, they said, isn't an apostle like the Jerusalem apostles. He's not an apostle like the others. He's kind of second rate. That's why he had it mostly right. And so now to defend his message, Paul has to defend himself. He was doing that in what we saw last week. He said, my message is from God. I didn't get it from my own creation. I didn't get it from the other apostles, though I did confirm it with them later, but I got it directly from God. He didn't even go to Jerusalem to confirm it, we read last week, for three years. And there he only met with two of the other apostles. Now he says after 14 years, chapter 2, verse 1, he goes to Jerusalem. And he takes this man named Titus with him. If you're familiar with the New Testament, there is a short letter further in called Titus that Paul wrote to this same man. Titus, as we read there, was a Greek man He converted to Christianity through Paul's ministry. He didn't have any Jewish background. He didn't have any Jewish blood. He didn't have any um, exposure or commitment to Jewish religion. And now he's a Christian. He has trusted Jesus' work on the cross and the empty tomb for his salvation. And Paul takes Titus with him to Jerusalem to make sure that men like Peter, James, and John were on the same page with Paul. And not because Paul was unsure of his message. He's already told us, if if someone else, even an angel, preaches to you a different gospel, don't listen. He's already told us, I got my gospel from God himself. He's not unsure of it, but he is finding that his fruitfulness, his effectiveness, is being curtailed because wherever he goes and wherever he's been, these people are coming in and saying, yes, faith and 
something else. And so he has to go and kind of force the issue when he goes to Jerusalem. And he, and he takes this man Titus, this Greek convert, as an object lesson. Titus, of course, because he's not Jewish, has never been circumcised. And Paul wants to leave no room for ambiguity. Will the Jewish apostles accept him or not? And if they do, then wherever Paul goes, he can say, listen, not in the abstract, but I have seen Peter, James, and John themselves at headquarters in Jerusalem receive a man, a believer, who is uncircumcised. He's forcing the issue. It's a bold move. This is a time for us to stop and say, why is this even such a big deal? Why was circumcision, of all things, what this early church, these early churches in this region of Galatia, even getting hung up on? To answer that, we have to go way back in history. But hang with me, it's going to make the good news all the sweeter. We have to go back 4,000 or so years, when the world was, just as it is today, a broken and messed up place. Every nation, every people, every person was broken and sinful. And into that broken and sinful mess, God comes and makes a promise to one man named Abraham. Into that broken world 4,000 years ago, God makes a promise. He makes a covenant with this one man, Abraham, who didn't know God. God comes to him and says, look, I promise, I covenant with you that I am going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you, one man, many descendants, even though you're old, even though your wife is the same age. I'm going to make you into a great nation, but not for your sake, not just for their sake. I'm going to do it to bless all the nations. That was the promise to Abraham. Into this broken and sinful world, Abraham, you're going to have descendants, and one descendant in particular, through whom all nations, every nation on the face of the earth will be blessed. And as a mark of that promise, God said to Abraham, I'm going to give a sign to you and to your descendants to show that this promise, this covenant, is for you. I'm going to give the mark of circumcision. It will be a sacred mark of belonging to God, a sacred mark even of this mission that he had given to his people, not just to be blessed themselves, but to be a blessing to all nations. Now, hundreds of years after that, to one of Abraham's descendants, Moses, God works, and he brings on top of that promise and covenant of Abraham of grace, he puts a promise on top of that, or he puts another covenant on top of it of law. And there's many types of law that came through Moses in the Old Testament in the first five books. Some was what we call the moral law that still guides our right and wrong uh, thoughts of what we do today. There was the civil law, which was to govern their life as a nation. And then there was the ceremonial law. And you could say that circumcision was a part of that ceremonial law. That was a complex, if you've read the first five books of the Bible, it's a complex set of laws that the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, had to follow in order to be ceremonially clean. And they had to be ceremonially clean in order to come and worship God at the tabernacle and then the temple. It included such laws as what they could eat or not eat. They could not eat, for instance, pork. They could not wear blended fabrics. If they touched anything that was dead or diseased or in any way unclean, then they would be unclean and had to go through 
a purification process in order to become clean, in order to go and worship God. Why? Well, that ceremonial law was placed on top of that gracious promise to Abraham to show them something, to show them a few things, that the holy and profane cannot be mixed, that sinful people need cleansing in order to go into the presence of God, and importantly, that no one can be completely clean and acceptable to God on their own because everybody was going to be unclean at some point. Some things that would make you unclean were sinful. They were wrong, but other things weren't necessarily sinful in and of themselves. God set up this complex system to keep them always thinking, am I clean or unclean? Am I able to go and worship God or not? Do I need to be purified before I can go? It was to teach them something. It was to teach them that we need God to do something to bring us to Him. But because of the nature of it, what we see is that it couldn't ultimately do the job itself. Yes, we need God to do something to bring us to Him. And here's the genius of Paul's message, and we'll see of Peter's and James and John in the New Testament and from God Himself, is that that thing we need from God to come to Him has been done. It has been done. It was done when Jesus died on the cross and when he raised up from the tomb once and for all. Because yes, we have to admit when we're honest with ourselves that we are sinful people. That we are sinful people. That we want to be independent and free from God. We want to set up our rules and our identities. We want to be in God's place. We worship anything and everything so often but Him. We worship any way that we want. We take his name lightly, we disregard his holy day, we don't honor our authorities, we get angry, we use cutting words, we murder, we steal and don't value others and what they own, we use our bodies however we want, we lie, we're greedy, and yes, that was the Ten Commandments right there. And we break all of them, every single one, even the best of us break all of those. We're sinful, as we said last week, in our wickedness as we break those, but we're also sinful in our obedience because we do it for the wrong reasons, for selfish reasons. We are unclean and sinful before God, and we've racked up a debt to Him in so doing that we can't pay. But Paul's message was, Jesus paid all that debt with His righteous and perfect life for the wicked and the quote-unquote righteous. Our sins, as Acts chapter 3 says, can be blotted out. We can be forgiven. Our record of debt can be canceled, not by anything we can do because we can't. And so we don't need the law to teach us that same thing anymore because Jesus, the one to whom it pointed, has come. We can't earn God's approval. We need Him to do it. That was the whole point of the ceremonial law. It was to help us see that ultimately we can't make ourselves clean before God. But the Judaizers came in and said, no, it's just the opposite. You need it to be clean before God. And Paul says, no, you missed the whole point. The one to whom it pointed has come. And so all of that has been fulfilled. They wanted to take those who were free and put them right back into bondage. Let me try to help you see how terrible this is by perhaps uh, jogging your memory with the movie Saving Private Ryan. Have you seen it? It's hard to believe it's like 25 years old now. Um, all of my movie references are old, so get used to it. 1998, probably the best war movie of all time. If you can recall it, the opening scene is an elderly man 
in France. He's a World War II veteran. It's 40 or 50 years after the war. He's walking through one of those iconic graveyards in France where so many Allied soldiers are buried, those white crosses. He's followed by his wife. He's followed by his kids. He's followed by his grandkids. And he doesn't say anything, but we can tell he's looking for something. He's looking for one of those crosses. And he finds it. And he's unsteady, he's uncertain, and he falls before it, overcome with emotion. And we're left wondering why, and the movie doesn't tell us right away, because it flashes then 40 or 50 years back to June 6, 1944, D-Day. Captain John Miller leads his company, Company C, in a breakout from the beach that day. And as they take the first hill, as they get there, they're told, you have new orders. Captain Miller is Tom Hanks' character, if you can remember. They learned that a man named Private James Francis Ryan of the 101st Airborne is missing, and he is presumed now to be the last surviving brother of four. The other three have already died in the war. And the command is, go and find him. So this family does not lose all four of their sons. And so Miller and his company follow orders. They go, and in the process, many of them lose their lives. They find Private Ryan. He can go home. But even Captain Miller gives his life. And as he expires on the bridge in a small town in France with Private Ryan standing next to him, you can tell he's near death. He pulls Private Ryan down. And with his last breath, he can barely say it. Do you remember what he says? Earn this. Earn it. And he simultaneously freed Private Ryan and put him into bondage. Because then the movie flashes back and we realize that man is the elderly Private Ryan, returned to find Captain Miller's grave. This man who rescued him, who freed him, and told him to earn it. And through tears, he looks at the grave and says to Captain Miller, I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope it was enough. And then he looks at his wife and he says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. There he is, surrounded by a loving wife, loving children, loving grandkids. He served his country faithfully, apparently. He's been a success in life. He can bring his whole family to France. He's checked all the boxes of being a good man in some folks' eyes. And yet he's still left in bondage. Have I done enough? Am I a good man? Have I earned this man's life back? Have I earned the lives of the others who died for me? The verdict for his entire life hung in the balance as he looked at his wife and said, tell me I'm a good man. It hung there. He was back into bondage. He'd been a slave his whole life. And I think that is the perfect picture of the wrong relationship with God that so many of us live. We're told Jesus died for us, and though he never said this on the cross, we hear him saying, earn it. Earn this. And keep going, keep going. Do more, do more. So you can earn back what I have given you. We feel that way in our relationship with God, but the good news is nothing less than this. By faith alone, by grace alone, we are free from having to do what the law never could do. For thousands of years, the Jews tried to keep the law, but it never worked. It never was enough because 
It can't be enough. But through Jesus, by grace alone, we have God's smile. We have God's approval. We have His acceptance. We have right standing before Him. You say, but we don't even do circumcision. How does this even apply to us? Because it applies to us in every way. You don't have to add anything to what Jesus did by your own obedience. You don't have to prove yourself worthy. You don't have to be more to earn what God freely gives. And by be more, I mean you don't have to be more consistent. You don't have to be more joyful. You don't have to be more obedient. You don't have to be more studious, more hospitable, more prayerful. You don't have to be more of anything to earn what God freely gives. Because while we were yet sinners, before we were more, He loved us. All of those things can be great. And they have their place, and we should talk about them, right? But we cannot rely on them. We cannot build on them to gain a good standing before God. It is freely, completely, and totally given. God loves you in Christ whether or not you have your devotions. He loves you in Christ whether or not you give enough, whether or not you're cleaned up, your theology is perfect, or your family is a mess. God loves you in Christ. One man I read this week said, Jesus has won the gold medal and given it to us. Don't go and dip it in bronze. And I would say, bronze? Yeah, more like last place. That's what I would dip it in. All the way back at the back of the pack. I I did not finish. A DNF. I can't even finish the race. If we can't gain God's approval through the Old Testament law, don't think some rule you make up for yourself and everybody else is going to be enough either. So often we can look at ourselves when we're doing better in some area of our life and think, man, this must sound like a symphony to God. I'm killing it with my devotions for two whole straight days. He must be so impressed. I've given for the first time. It sounds like a symphony to God. With my theology, I learned what was wrong and I've learned what's right. With my work ethic, my family life, my views on politics, I bet that sounds like a symphony to God. But even if you had any of that or all of that dialed in a thousand times more than you do, do you know what it still sounds like to our perfect, exalted, majestic, transcendent God? Like a three-year-old banging on a piano. It doesn't sound like a symphony. The best human obedience can't begin to touch his own standard. And yet, though it sounds that way, God loves it. Have you been to a museum and seen some classic work of art? I've been to a few, and I've seen Rembrandt's, and I've seen Monet's, and I've seen all those famous artists, some of which I can remember, a lot of which I can't. They were great. They were impressive. But as a parent, you know none of it was ever impressive as your own child scribbles. You didn't get near as excited about some masterpiece as you do your three-year-old's art. Because it's your child, and God is the same way. We imagine, man, I've done this now, and it's a symphony. And God says, I don't love it because it's so great. I just love it because it's you. I just love it because you're responding to my grace. The good news, drill it into your hearts and minds, is you do not live on an achieve-fail paradigm with God. He's removed that. It's gone. Jesus has achieved. We have failed That's all we need. Our achievement and our failure isn't what matters. Jesus' achievement, recognizing our failure and trusting in His achievement. You cannot add to the pleasure God has in you. He had pleasure in you before you were obedient. 
You can't add to that. You can't suddenly begin now to work that back up, to pay that off. He loved us when we were sinners, and He's not going to love us more when we're obedient. So we are free. Second, and more briefly, let's consider the next few points. Second, we fight to live free. We fight to live free. Go back with me to verse 5. Paul did not yield in submission even for a moment to those who said Titus had to be circumcised. By bringing Titus to Jerusalem, he was going to have, like we said, a powerful example of how the three inner disciples from Jesus' ministry, Peter, James, and John, receiving an unclean person. They met with him. I wondered if they ate with him. We're going to talk about that more in the paragraph we look at next week, how Peter refused to eat with Gentiles later. They had to be with Titus, a man who was, according to the Old Testament law, unclean. Paul was going to have this powerful example of the inner three receiving him. Paul was willing to fight in the best possible sense to preserve the glorious truth of the gospel, which means we have to watch for threats to the gospel from the outside. Paul says, false brothers were secretly brought in. They wanted to limit the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom from that bondage of our own obedience to gain God's approval. The message of free grace will always threaten some. The message of free grace will always mean some people who were in control are no longer in control, as if they ever really were. You see, we care about good doctrine because bad doctrine hurts people. It keeps them from freedom. But just having the right doctrine doesn't matter. We also have to trust it. We have to lean into it. We have to understand how it works out in our lives. Every generation has some place where the gospel at its core must be fought for and preserved. But that does not mean that we're repugnant and mean. Some people say social media has made us meaner. I just think it's exposed what's already there. Too many Christians think being right gives them an excuse to be mean. And it doesn't. Look how Paul fought. He went privately to Peter, James, and John. If he had had Twitter, he didn't go there first to confront somebody. He went first just to them to seek to win them over. He wasn't repugnant and he wasn't mean, but he didn't back down. He fought not for a, so that even just for a minute the gospel could be compromised. He wasn't going to yield for a moment. He was watching for threats from the outside, and yes, so must we. But yes, I don't think it's too much of a stretch either to say we must watch for threats to this freedom in the gospel from the inside as well. What is it in your life, the secret corner of your heart, that still rises up and says, yes, but I need to do this or that in order to get God's smile or build my credibility before, somewhere, or before someone else? We have to be ruthless in finding those areas of our life where we still seek to add on to what Jesus did by making a rule and following it that is beyond what God has said. I read this week that someone put it this way, and I shared this quote with the Sunday school class this morning. The old hymn that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Do you know it? We could also sing it this way, and it would be true, and this is what Paul is saying here. My hope is built on nothing more than Jesus' blood or righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less, and it's built on nothing more. Do you hear the difference? Nothing less than Jesus' righteousness, but I don't need any more than that either. That is all I need before God. 
It's all I'm ever going to have before God, but it's all that I need as well. Many have said, rightly so, that we are works righteousness junkies. We are addicted to trying to earn our way to God. We're addicted to it. We have to be ruthless in finding out those areas in your life and weeding them out, repenting of them, and trusting God's free grace once again. So we're free, and therefore we fight. Third, therefore we partner. We partner with those different than us. Go back with me to verses 9 and 10. Peter, James, and John gave Paul the right hand of fellowship that Paul and Barnabas could go to the Gentiles, Peter, James, and John to the circumcised, the Jews. They recognized that some had a calling, a message, a style, an approach fit for some groups. Others had a calling, a message, a style, an approach fit for others. And if you go through the book of Acts, you can see exactly how this worked out. Acts has long sermons in it. Some of these long sermons were to Jews, some were to Gentiles. And it's always the same gospel of grace alone, faith alone, and Jesus alone. But the ones to the Jews have a different emphasis and focus and tactic. The ones to the Gentiles have another because they were asking different questions. It's the same gospel, but it's presented and adapted to the audience. And that's exactly what these men are doing here. They are adapting their ministry without losing the gospel. They also seem to rejoice in each other's callings. You see, they could have been about empire building, but none of them are trying to control the other one. The uh, men from Jerusalem could have been jealous of Paul and his worldwide global ministry. Paul could have been jealous of them. I want to be a pillar. They're the pillars of the church. Why can't I be a pillar of the church? They said, no, we're going to follow God as he calls. We're going to do our part. The others will do their part. And here's how I think this applies. If there's a church that doesn't completely agree with us, but has the gospel, we should be their biggest fan. We want them to do well. Yes, we might look and say, as best I can tell from God's word, there's a practice or an emphasis that's missing that we are trying to bring, but at the same time, I know that my church must be missing something. My branch of God's kingdom must be missing something, of course, because we're all flawed. No church has an absolute corner on everything, and so we love truth. We fight for truth, but at the same time, we recognize that God's kingdom and the call to reach the lost needs more than just our little branch. I love my branch of the church. I care about good doctrine. But I'm glad the whole church is not the PCA. I'm glad Clemson Press is not the only show in town. There can be different styles of music and means of outreach in these things, as long as it's the same essential gospel message. And the church must always be reforming and studying Scripture and seeking to bring that about. But at the same time, we honor and rejoice in other branches of Christ's church and what God is doing through them. That doesn't mean that we won't have differences and even serious conversations and even various levels of partnership. Of course we will. But if the gospel message is as good as it is, and it is, then it's not only up to us. We need the rest of God's church. And lastly, we're free, so we fight, we partner, and we remember the poor. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10 can sound like a, and now for something completely different moment to Christians of our day and age. It can sound like a non sequitur. Wait, they're arguing about how to have a right relationship with God, and oh, by the way, remember the poor. 
Oh, that's nice. But actually, it has everything to do with the very debate that they're having. You see, Paul and the apostles are coming to agreement about the glory of the gospel, how to have that right relationship with God. If you put Christians of all time in a room together, Christians like us who seem to see little connection between the gospel and ministry to the poor would be in the extreme minority. Because Christians throughout history have understood the concept, perhaps because they've been those more experienced with poverty than we have been. There's so much to say here, and we can't say it all, but let me just say this much to try to explain the connection. Why is this the one thing the apostles wanted Paul to do? Scripture says that physical poverty can be a reminder of our spiritual poverty. Our spiritual poverty is a reminder of God's riches given to us in Jesus. God's riches are a reminder that those very riches are given to us for our benefit, by grace alone. They're a reminder that God cared about us when we hated Him, that He's been kind to us, and so we want to be kind to others even if they don't deserve it. Even if they don't deserve it. Our spiritual riches are a reminder that we can give without running out. God's never going to stop being generous with us. Our spiritual riches are a reminder of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that the Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, Jesus was rich. For our sake he became poor so that we might be rich, so that we can be generous. The physical poverty around us is naturally applied to when we trust the gospel. What if Christians were known for that? What if we were known for our love for the poor, that there were not a needy person among us And then it overflowed to those outside of the church. Could there be any better defense and demonstration of God's free grace than that? If receiving God's free grace actually changed how we used our resources for the sake of those who had less. You might know here at Clemson Press that our mercy ministry team cares about those kinds of things. Our goal is first to give to our church members who are in need and then to overflow to those in need in all of the area around us, to care for the widows and the orphans through adoption and foster care. And we can't do it all alone, so we need partners. If you go to our website and go to the ministries tab and click on Mercy, you'll see the organizations that we're privileged to partner with. If the Lord leads, you can give there to our efforts to do those kinds of things. If you want to get more involved, you can go see Sherry Bull. Her contact information is there on the website. You can see one of our deacons. You can get involved in actually doing these things physically through gifts and through service. You see, one thing I love about this church is it understands and has been changed by the gospel and has been doing these kinds of things. And our dream and our prayer is that it would understand and trust the gospel even more And because of that, be able, by God's grace, to do yet even more of those kinds of things. Because you see, the gospel is better than we think. Grace is better than we can ever know. So even this week, when that performance mindset rears up in your head and your heart, fight it with the truth. When you think God is ready to kick you out because you failed again, know he's not surprised. No, he is calling you to more, but not to gain his approval, but because you already have it. Let's pray. Father, by your grace alone, we can hear and trust and be changed. So we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would 
all give us a new sense, a deeper sense, maybe than we've ever had. We continually need it of how good and gracious and free your offer of salvation is, how great your love is. Father, may we continually be changed by the gospel. And may we never yield a moment, Father, when it comes to preserving that truth, not for the sake of our tribe or our control, but for the sake of your glory and of people who need to know that they can be free. Teach us, Father, what all this means in all of our lives, even this week. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.